He waves his hand, starts a fire, the ship moves in to port, and the, the ship's there and begins to, to rescue him, and he is elated with all of these things. The captain of the ship comes to him and begins to ask some questions. The first question is, is, I see that in the context of this island, you've built three structures. Can you describe to me what they are? I said, yeah, sure, no problem. The first one is my house, and this is where I live, and kind of took him on a tour, he said, the second one is my church. He said, well, what's the third one? He said, oh, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> and, and that's really where we're at. When we're talking about biblical community is there's just this sense that we have a tendency to think about biblical community as sort of a, an addition to our worship of God. And so we can do it on our own. And if there are things that happen that we just really don't like in terms of operations or mechanics or even levels of hurt that all of us have experienced in the context of church, we find it easier to depart from that local body of believers than I think the Bible gives us license to do. And so what I want to do, rather than just set the premise and give you my opinions about that, is I want the word to speak to us about those things. And so we're going to be jumping into Romans chapter 16 this morning. Now, let me give you a little bit of backdrop in terms of the book of Romans. So Paul is writing this letter, likely from a place in Corinth, uh, likely had never been to the church at Rome. And he's doing a couple of things. The first thing in, in the first kind of 11 chapters is he's laying out and reminding them of the deep, rich theology of the gospel. So what you'll hear with just utter frequency if you read through the letter uh, to the church at Rome is that there's this truth that, that humanity is sick with sin. That they have no ability to understand the truth of who God is in and of themselves. That, that left to their own devices, they will choose their own way in this selfish independence. And, and trying to just make the best in their world and do what they can apart from the reality and the work of Christ. And, and that they're just going to do whatever they want. But, but God has intervened in all of humanity in such a way to expose the truth of his character and offer and pursue Sick, sin sick sinners with a, a level of intimacy and relationship because we as humanity are separated from intimacy with God because of our sin. Christ has come to free us from the bondage of that sin and allow us to experience intimacy with him. And not just for the purpose of experiencing eternal life but for the purpose of experiencing life eternally. Like God is the giver of life. And so as we confess our need of him and confess our sin and recognize what Christ has done on the cross, we find ourselves in union and intimacy with Christ. And yet the other piece that Paul is very committed to at the church at Rome is, is also realizing that even in the midst of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who would be considered part of the universal church and even part of a local church, there's still tension. I know that shocks you, but there's still, there's still butting heads in the context of fellow believers who are followers of Christ still at times struggle to get along. There's a, a brokenness that continues to reside in the hearts of those who have still found faith in Jesus Christ, but those 
preferences and those areas of, of uh, what they desire and their hurts and their bitterness have, have taken up root and caused tension. So Paul is continuing to remind them about the reality and the significance of who God is and how he works himself out in the context of a Christian biblical community. And it's not to say, well, if you, you, would, you just got to find the right church where everybody gets along. Good luck. Right? I mean, seriously, the, the reality of the existence of that doesn't exist specifically when you show up <laughs> because you bring your brokenness as much as I do. And so what, what Paul is doing from, from chapter 12 on is communicating how theology and the truth of the gospel actually operates. So what he's doing is he's telling us that theology moves into the neighborhood. It shows up in your homes and in your relationships with other people. Because theology that's left in the mind is no use to anyone. Like there's a practical, transformative change that the truth of God's word does in us. And if all of us have all of this solid biblical doctrine that we can parse out every word and communicate every systematic truth that is clear within the pages of scripture, and we're mean and ugly and nasty to one another, there's a discrepancy, right? There's a sense in which it can't stay up here, but, but theology moves itself into the neighborhood. And so what ends up happening, and from chapter 12 on, is he gives us kind of five, if you will, church killers. And what I mean by church killers, I mean community killers. Areas in which things that take place in the context of a biblical community actually become obstacles and detrimental to that community. Starts off very early in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And he'll tell us that, that one of the biggest challenges that exists in, in killing biblical community is comparison. Comparing yourself with other people. For good or for ill, most likely what ends up happening is we say to ourselves, someone stands up or we see some sin exposed in someone's heart. And what we would say to ourselves is, thank God that's not me. I'm glad I'm better. I'm glad I'm further along. Or even in the context of a larger Christian community, we compare ourselves with other churches, right? We say, oh, well, I found the church. And so I moved to that church and I enjoy that church. And when you talk about why did you come to that church versus the other church, and notoriously, it's going to be about comparison. They didn't do what I liked them to do, or someone said something that was painful and hurtful to me. And I'm not minimizing those things. I'm telling you that Paul is driven to moving us to the place that the gospel works itself out in those very situations. There is something significant that the Lord moves us to in helping us understand how theology moves into our hearts and nearly moves into our neighborhood. Number two is partiality. We love some and not others. <laughs> oh boy, I, that, that's, that's church 101, right? So chapter 12 Verse 9 through chapter 13 begins to spell out how Paul is saying, moving into thinking about loving or preferentially loving others uh, above other people and, and creating sections and factions in the context of those things, just it is a community killer. Three, letting preferences drive us. Letting our own desires for what we want or how we think things should happen are killers for community. Chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 13. It's a section where Paul is riveted and communicating to the church at Rome that if you allow preferences to drive you, you will always be notoriously unsatisfied because you'll never get your way. <laughs> 
Right? If that's the driving, motivating focus, then the gospel takes a second seat or a back seat. And if it does, then it, it tends to kill biblical community because what grows in the, the soil of preferences? Bitterness, frustration, anger. Those are the seeds that are planted when we feel like we're not getting what we want. So it's a community killer. Four, chapter 15, verses 14 through 23, reckless independence. <laughs> community killer would have the vocabulary of, I can do this alone. And Paul is convinced through the truth of the gospel and would want to say to any one of us that would struggle with those things, no, you can't because you weren't created to. You were never fashioned to be self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency and reckless independence are actually counter to the truth and the reality of the gospel. You've been created for intimacy with God. You need him. You cannot do this on your own. And he's also created a biblical community around you where you need other people in your life that have been given to you as a gift from the Lord to grow, to change, and to be transformed. We've been called to be intertwined with one another. And then chapter 16, which we're going to jump into in just a little bit, a community killer, the fifth community killer that I think Paul highlights is devaluing other people. It comes in different languages. The church in Vermont that I pastored for 11 years, the, the vocabulary um, was sort of a over-spiritualized, but there was a sense in which those who had been in the church for generations should have had a louder voice. And the new people, the new people that came in were just people that were here to take advantage of what God was already doing in the church. Devalued their contribution. It, it, it happens on a regular basis. And so those are community killers that Paul lays out from chapter 12 to chapter 16. Now, let me give you a little bit of a window into chapter 16. Many have read this last portion of the, the epistle to the Romans, and you look at it, and literally all you hear is names. It feels like just a list of people where it feels like it's an addition to all of the richness of the theology that Paul communicated to the church in Rome from chapter 1 to chapter 15. I'm going to suggest to you this morning this is not an addition. This is the culmination of theology. This is where it lives itself out and moves into the neighborhood. The reason chapter 16 is here by God's divine wisdom is to help us realize that all of the richness of the theology that Paul gives us, and I would say the book of Romans is probably one of the most significant epistles that lay out the truth of the gospel than anything else. Like It's so rich in its, its theology and its truth. But it works itself out practically in chapter 16 in the lives of specific individuals. It moves us with utter abandon and without shame or apology into Christian community. Because what he's telling us is that, that you can have a theology and you can get the truth of the gospel right you can know that Jesus died for your sins and was raised on the third day and allowed you intimacy with him solely through placing your faith and trust in what he's done. And yet, the gospel compels us on a regular basis to have that be the centerpiece of our life, so much so that it moves us towards a radical love towards other people because of how we've been loved by Jesus. 
And that means the lost who don't know Christ. And it also means the person you're sitting next to. It means that love and the work of Christ's love for us pours itself out in every experience that we have. The gospel is the centerpiece. So Romans chapter 16 becomes the the heartbeat of how theology works itself out. So as we jump into chapter 16, let me see if I can enter into this text by giving you a bit of a, a personal story. So in high school, I had this harebrained idea that I was going to go visit some friends who lived about 25 miles away. And, and the, the reality was is that both my parents were working, and so I had a bicycle, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ride 25 miles on this mountain bike up and down these hills in New Mexico to spend some time, a couple hours with my friends, and then I'm going to have to ride back, right? I, I, Obviously, you guys know that I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I thought I could figure it out, right? I thought I got this and had all of these things where I thought I had the capability and ability to do this. The first 25 miles were were not terrible. I was able to get there and be with my friends and hang out and rest. Five miles into the 25 miles back, I I, I ain't doing so hot. Things are struggling. My ability to to just manufacture strength was, was really limited, but... I was a young kid and uh, I tended to, to be compelled by shame. So I was embarrassed to think that I didn't have the ability to do this. So I start to figure out ways in which I can make this not look like it's my fault. And, and I, you know, I keep praying on the ways I'm pedaling up these hills. Lord, just let me get a flat tire, right? I'm, I'm looking for rocks that I can just run over and maybe the tire will pop. Wouldn't that be awesome? None of it happened. So what do I do? Young teenage kid with all of this ingenuity, I just let the air out of the tire. <laughs> I, I did, 100%. And so I start walking, and then I start to get frustrated that no one's seeing a young kid walking along the side of a highway with a flat tire. But what ends up happening is I find my way, and, and up on this, across the highway on this, this hill is this old, rundown western bar. So 14 years old, maybe they have a phone. I didn't have cell phones at the time for you kids. There was a time where cell phones didn't exist. And I lived during that generation. See how lucky you are? So I was there and moved and it walked in and the, the bar maid or bartender or whatever it was, I mean, this dirty, nasty bar, the bartender, that's a better word, like I'm back in the old Western times. The bartender was there and I said, can I use your phone? I need to call my mom because I got a flat tire. So I'm already lying to her because I didn't get a flat tire. I made myself have a flat tire. Called my mom, said, mom, I've had some mechanical problems with my bike. I can't make it all the way home. Would you come pick me up? She said, sure. So sure enough, my tire's flat. She comes about 10, 15 minutes, puts my bike in the back of the car and takes me home. Never the wiser. (laughs) Here's why I want to tell you that story. Is that often in the context of our struggles with any biblical Christian community, we tend to blame it on the mechanical problems of the church because we don't want to admit that we have weakness. And that's what happened to me. (laughs) I didn't want to admit it was actually my weakness that didn't allow me to to get home. So I manufactured a mechanical issue. And I'm not saying that churches don't have operational issues, mechanical issues, and that you or I haven't experienced pain in the context of the church. But I am saying that that pain is not just the only thing that takes place, but it's also an exposure of our own weakness that God is growing in us. That there's a change in the transformation that the Lord is doing that often we are unwilling to recognize. And so at times we tend to 
maybe manufacture the truth or amplify situations that exist that, that really are more about our struggles and weakness than they are about the failure or the mechanical failure of the church. So Romans 16, I'm going to read the chapter for us this morning, and I just want you to hear in reference to the rich theology of the first 15 chapters, how it's working itself out in the context of the church and why this is so critical. Chapter 16, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Cancreae that you would welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks uh, as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epaphroditus, who was the first convert of Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who had worked hard. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. This is sort of a test to see if I can say all these names, just FYI. Um, my fellow, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amphilitus as well, um, um, my beloved in the Lord, and Greet Urbanus, a fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who approved in Christ, and greet uh, those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herdronian, and greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophina and Trophosa, likely twins. Greet the beloved Parasus who worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, what a great name. Uh, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has um, been a mother to me as well. Greet Socrates and Phlegon and Hermes and Patrobus and Hermas and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus and Junia and Nerus uh, and his sister and Olympus uh, and all of the great who were with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss all the churches greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such a person does not serve the Lord, but their own appetites. By, uh, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and as to what is evil and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius, Jason, and Sostafater, my kinsmen. I, Tertus, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is the host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to whom who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. 
it's true, right? That, that what we get as these, these names are read is that you get, you get Paul communicating to a specific local church or specific local churches in Rome about the substance of how the truth of the gospel works itself out. Observation number one that I want to make is biblical community is built. It's not found. Biblical community is built, not found. You don't just show up at a place and you're like, okay, as long as it has the necessary elements and the operational things that I want to have there, there's, there's churches and even our church where, where weakness exists. So that we, we realize that the Lord has given gifts to all for the edification or the uplifting of the body. So there's a sense in which all of us are united together. And, and what we're doing is we're allowing the truth of the scriptures to operate in the context of very specific relationships for the purpose of bringing glory to God. So what we would say is that a church isn't working only if somehow things seem to be going well. It's in the tension. It's through the difficulty. It's a part of the honest, authentic conversations where we are wrestling with life issues and frustration issues and criticism issues and preference issues and all of those things are coming to the surface. Why? So that we can surrender to them to the power of the gospel and admit that we need Jesus to change us. <laughs> Not a lot of amens, but I don't care because that's what's true, right? There's a sense in which what the Lord is doing is realizing that the biblical community is something that we fight for. We work for it. What we're, what we're seeking is the authority of the scriptures to be applied to every specific circumstance. And what we realize is that the main issue is not just that the mechanics of the church or the challenges of the church aren't working perfectly, but that there's weakness that exists in each of our hearts that the Lord needs to change. And we see that exposed. And then what do we do? We move towards one another. In the midst of the challenges, in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the brokenness, we move towards one another because we first move towards Christ through the promises of his word. And what we're saying is, I know that there are things that need to be done in me. And so rather than harbor bitterness and allow it to take up root and cultivate a, a church based on preferences, what we say is God has given us people. And this is his church. He's the chief shepherd. He's in charge. He calls the shots. Praise the Lord. And because he calls the shots, what does he drive us to? To submit ourselves to the truth of his word and realize that every single person that you look at in the face on Sunday mornings, Wednesday night, or throughout the week has been given to you as a gift by God. Everyone. <laughs> There's not one that you can diminish and say, well, uh, I would rather go over here because this person is difficult for me. The difficulty that the other priest and person that brings to the table is because there are changes that the Lord is doing in your own heart and mine as well. And I might be that difficult person for you. Just don't tell me. No, it's okay. You can. There's open authentics. If, if it's me, we can have conversations. And we've said that. So we just came out with a strategic plan over the next five years. And what we've been harping on on a regular basis is that we want to be so convinced that we can discover life in the power of God's grace and share that life-changing grace with others that it works itself out in gospel-oriented relationships. So one of our key strategic points is growing in emotional and relational health. <laughs> that means that what we're doing is allowing the truth of God's word 
to be applied to every single relationship that God has sovereignly gifted us with and expose those areas of weakness, challenge, preference, or sin in our own hearts so that they no longer captivate us, but we are freed from them because we've submitted them to the power of the cross. Our sin that we bring to the table will remind it on a regular basis that God has freed us from. And we need others to do that as well. But it's in the midst of the tension and the challenge in relationships where we have to remind ourselves that Christian community, biblical community, is built. It's not found. And it includes us moving towards Christ and towards one another. So part of the story of, of Rome, specifically with Priscilla and Aquila in the early verses, verses 2 and verse 3, is that these are, these are kind of church planters. And what happened, um, Claudius was emperor around AD 49, and in the process of that, they decided to get rid of all of the Jews. And so they moved them out of Rome, and, and, and what ended up happening is, is Priscilla and Aquila probably moved to, to, to Corinth, and the process met Paul. They had a tent-making ministry, and in the process of those things, everywhere they went, they decided to look for other fellow believers grow and plant a church and see where God was going to take them next. So they, they lived their lives as though everything that they had was the Lord's. It was kind of this blank check mentality. God, you can do what you want, when you want, however you want. Just help me be receptive and know what it is. And so they moved, they met Paul. They probably even went to Ephesus and they were doing all these things. And then finally Claudius died. what they do? They went back to Rome. And in the process of being back in Rome, they began to continue to, to grow a church and reconnect those relationships because they realized that biblical community is something that's worth investing in and fighting for. So in the process of all of those things, you hear these, these stories, these, these people, and, and he's telling us to greet them, or he's telling them to greet one another. Just say, hey, I, I see you. I recognize the work that the Lord is doing in you, and I'm grateful for the passion and the work that the Lord has done as the church is built in Rome. And again, like Paul never went to, to Rome. And so he's, he's hearing all of these stories and the work that the Lord is doing in the churches in Rome in such a significant way that it's having an impact beyond just that church. And I don't think that that's just isolated to this church in Rome. I think when a church is a church that's under and longs and lives under the shepherding arm of Jesus Christ, its impact is infinitely greater. It, it, it stretches beyond what God, what, what we could even expect because God has bigger plans than just Park Springs. And I'm thankful for that. I've been watching recently, and I'm not sure if you guys know the story of Mars Hill, but it was this church plant in Seattle by Mark Driscoll. It grew just uh, like wildfire, upwards of 15,000 members of the church and, and ended up becoming something that just totally fell apart almost overnight because of issues of sin and pride. And so Christianity Today has done a podcast that's been coming out weekly called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I listened to the last one on the way home from the youth retreat with, with uh, uh, our, my buddy Elder Jim. And uh, we were just listening to the, the reality of where they were at about how significant they were focused on branding. But they said one thing that struck with me that, that I think applies to this text. Um, and and the, the desire that Mark had was that scale creates distance. And here's what he means. The bigger the church, the less access people have to you, right? So you can kind of be removed from the body that you shepherd, the larger the church is. And I, trust me, I am not harping on large churches. I think God can use them in tremendous ways. But I think when that's the mental model, there's problems. Because I hear Paul in this text, and he, he knows specifically of these people, and he knows what they're doing. 
There's a relational intimacy and connectedness that he has as he recognizes the places that they have tension, but he allows and communicates the truth of the gospel in the midst of those intentions. So the desire to grow so big so that people don't bother you is a problem for me. Because I think what the biblical model that God gives us is that our lives are called to be so intertwined that it reflects the beauty of God. I think that's what he's moving us towards. Like that's the essence of where he's communicating in this text is that our lives are intertwined in a reflection of the beauty of God. Our lives are meshed with one another. And we know those places where God is changing us. I don't have to explain to you the places where you've been hurt by people in the body. You know what I'm talking about. You know who they are and where they exist. You know where you avoid them and you know where you step in. I don't need to manage that for you. I'm just asking you to attend to the reality that the spirit of Christ wants to do something in you because of it. That there's a movement towards a passionate reflection as we continue to see how the gospel works itself out in our lives. There's so many challenges that you and I face. And I get that. And we don't want to just minimize it, but, but the story of biblical community is one in which there's an openness to be able to confess sin. There's a safety to say, you know what? This is where I failed, and I'm sorry. And in the process of that, there's a willingness to hear, you know what? The Lord has forgiven me, so I forgive you. And it's not that it's watering down the hurt, but it's not allowing the hurt to control you. And yet, I think many have allowed the cultivation of some of that bitterness to grow fruit where it's, it, it seems easier to avoid relationships than to move towards them. Our lives are intertwined. I'll tell you a little bit about a story in Vermont. Vermont uh, wouldn't let me go easily, and, and I mean that in the sense that the last few days of my ministry there, uh, my family had moved out of the parsonage. Boy, that's an old term. But we were in a parsonage, we had moved out, we were living, this, this woman in the church uh, was in Florida, and so she allowed us to live in her house in Vermont, it was just a really kind gesture, and so we were living there, Aaron's mom was up, and sure enough, it's winter in Vermont, yeah, it seems like it's always winter in Vermont, but what had happened is the septic tank, and the pipe from the septic tank froze, <laughs> okay? So here's what happens when that happens, things get backed up. And so one of the last nights in Vermont, there is, well, sewage in the washing machine, all along the basement. There's stuff in the dry. I mean, it's just nasty stuff. And you're like, I don't even, I mean, so much of this isn't even my stuff, right? I mean, it's, it's been there for a while. It's so disgusting. In the process of those things, what do you do? Do you fix it on your own and try and vacuum this stuff up? Or are there people that you know that no matter what the dilemma is, because of biblical faithful community, you can call. And they'll be there. You don't have to explain why you need them there. They just show up. That was Roy for us. Middle of the night, midnight. They moved my family into their house and their spare room. And Roy and I are vacuuming up sewage. That's my boy. You don't, might not ever know Roy, but you have Roy's. You have people in your life that you know that on, the, on the, the moment that you need something, regardless of what it is, you can call. And then you also have other people, 
and I'm not going to mention any names from churches in Vermont, just in case they're watching this stream. But there's people that have been so painful to me in the context of my relationship with them, I would never call. I, I don't want anything to do with their dysfunction. And that's my own weakness because I know that the Lord can work in that. But our lives are so intertwined that as biblical community rolls itself out, we are committed to the bride of Christ. We are committed to one another. We make a significant, passionate decision to say, choosing, because of the truth of the gospel, to put myself in community even when it's hard. That's why it's a spiritual practice. Because spiritual practices are things that we choose to do to honor Jesus Christ that aren't always simple and aren't always easy. Here's what ends up happening. I think it towards the end of this text in verse 17, and I'll finish up with this, is he moves to speaking to these churches after encouraging these people and all of the things. Some of them have been fellow prisoners. Some of them have been considered fellow workers. God has done just tremendous things in these churches in Rome. In the process of that, he tells them, he appeals, and in the sense of sort of begging them to consider, if you will, to, to be careful. But what does he say be careful about? He tells them to guard against divisions and distractions that serve personal appetites. He's saying that very seriously, churches can fall stray to the reality that they can be run by preferences of people rather than the glory of God, and it hurts, and it hurts people, and it hurts ministries, and it hurts witnesses. Here's what he says in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, he says, for such person does not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Here's where I think he concludes as he, he moves the church to dealing honestly and authentically with the tensions is that part of the challenges that we face in relationships with people expose our trust and belief in the potency of the gospel. I'm say it again. <laughs> I think that some of the tensions and the challenges that we are currently facing with people are to expose for us the reality of whether or not we truly believe the power and potency of the gospel. The power and potency of the gospel is this. God... His infant wisdom created humanity in such a way that there was a, a, a sense that their worship and sacrifice and love for God himself would exhibit and bring him glory. Sin entered in, vandalized and hurt relationships, separated their relationship with God. And now through the redemptive work of Christ, where he's restoring and fixing all things and bringing things to himself, that that redemptive nature where the deepest hearts of people's lives are submitted to the truth of the gospel and its potency, that God could then leverage those stories in such a way that they bring him glory. Some of the deepest hurts I've experienced in my life were the biggest moments of change in my walk with the Lord, period. And so there's a desire not to say, hey, look at me, I wanna get hurt. And so I want you guys all to come up after church and tell me how bad you think I am. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that because we live in the midst of a church where it's filled with broken people, and yes, I'm talking about you, and I'm talking about me, all of us exist in that level of brokenness. 
those hurts and those challenges are the very areas that God is cultivating places of growth in your life. So think about that. Think about the place where you've been hurt the most in the midst of biblical community. Then ask yourself, as I need to ask myself, where is it that my weakness is being exposed and where is it that I'm trying to justify why I feel this way and make it about someone else? Tim Keller says this, and I'll close with this. Tim Keller says that we are not only people that need to repent of our sin, but we also need to repent of our justifications. (laughs) That's a good one. Man, that just hit me like a ton of bricks because I think there's a place where what I tend to do is minimize my own weakness, maximize someone else's sin, so I don't have to deal with my own weakness. (laughs) Breach. Right? I mean, that's really where it's at. And so the rubber meets the road. And we look at Romans chapter 16 and God unfolding this theology as it works itself out in the lives of the people. And that's what he's telling us. He's telling us that, that we are a people that, who serve a good God who is graciously loving and transforming our lives. We have experienced a love we don't deserve, right? So far, so good. That love is so powerful that it changes how we love. Right? That means in those places of friction, God is exposing for us that the gospel needs to meet us and strengthen us to love in ways that we have not loved before, even though we've been loved that way. We are a people that not only need to repent of our sin, but repent of our justifications. Pray with me if you would. 